Hello and welcome to the Busyness Podcast. My name is Emily Austin. I'm the founder and CEO of a London-based PR agency called Emerge. I'm passionate about launching and scaling small businesses and have been fortunate enough in my 13-year career to work with some of the most exciting, category-defining brands in the world. I started my business when I was 22 years old, fresh out of university. Since that time, the world has got louder. Our expectations have become greater and our lives have become busier. Fobbing friends off with the stock answer we've all become accustomed to, I'm so busy, is an attempt to compel, conflate and convince. But when did being too busy become a mark of status? Why is the goal to never have any free time? And just what the fuck is everyone doing? Are we setting unrealistic expectations for future entrepreneurs and business owners by encouraging them that a maniacal approach to diarising is the standard? This podcast aims to give you a realistic, detailed insight into the honest stories, the failures, the triumphs, the intricacies, the mistakes, the comebacks, the fuck-ups from those set to make their mark, the leaders, movers and shakers, trailblazers and game changers. We cover imposter syndrome, hiring and firing, call-out culture, anxiety, global growth, daily routines and knowing when to quit, choosing the best in the busyness to help you cut through the noise and optimise your success. Connie Nam was born in Seoul and raised in Washington, D.C. and Seattle. The hustle and bustle of the cosmopolitan city of London appealed to her, and the lust for learning and growing enticed her to apply for an MBA at the London Business School. She longed to turn her passion for business and love of unique contemporary jewellery into a bona fide company of her own. Immediately after graduating, her dream became a reality, and she founded Astro de Mille in 2012. Connie talked passionately with me about the growth of the business, how her background helped her negotiate with investors, how the business has just announced revenues of over £10 million, and what it's like to open a seventh store in a pandemic. I'd love to start by you telling me a little bit more about the brand and what the mission is. Yeah, of course. Um, So Astrid and Mew is a contemporary direct-to-consumer brand, but we call it a movement, that we are a movement, not just a jewelry brand. So the whole mission is to revolutionize the jewelry industry and the landscape of the industry, which has um, been a bit stale for like a really long time compared to the um, usual fashion industry. And I read that the name of the business is uh, based on characters that you've created to kind of embody the spirit of the business. Can you just tell me a bit more about the name? Yeah, yeah, of course. There's a whole life story behind Astrid of you, but they're essentially um, inspired by, so Astrid is inspired by my sister, who's a musician, who's an artist and more creative, and Miu is inspired by myself in a way, by the cooler version of me. So Astrid and Miu, they're, they're both quite international. Astrid grew up in Sweden, but she moved to London to study jewelry design, and she has a famous music 
musician boyfriend. She lives in Camden. She's an introvert and she loves to hang out with a small group of friends. She get, likes to go to museums and go to go to concerts and shop from sustainable independent brands. And Miu, on the other hand, she grew up in Tokyo, went to international school, and she did business. She she was a PR girl in New York for a prominent um, fashion designer. She came to London to start her own business and she lives on her own, um, has a single life in shortage, and she loves to party. So that's the whole story behind Astrid and you. And what I wanted to create is, um, you know, these girls that embody sort of my ethos behind the brand of being global and diverse and being um, ca- ca- being able to cater to different kinds of girls, but uh, also creating that aspiration behind um, the brand. So that's where the two names come from. And I, and I just felt like those two names are really cool. The one is Swedish, one is Japanese. Um, and they just sounded cooler than Connie and something or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and has that been has that been helpful for you when you make decisions about branding and partnerships and product lines and you know collections? Because oh, yeah. you've sort of got very clear yeah. I guess representations of consumers as well. Yeah, sort of absolutely, absolutely. So this is a, this is a really powerful tool that we use internally more than externally. So whenever you know our designer or our brand team work on a campaign or a product, we think in our heads like, oh, is this collection a Mio collection? Is this an Astrid collection? And there's always a combination of the two in each of the collections or store launches and things like that. So for instance, like even stores, um, I guess like. Fox Park, for instance, would be um, more of a Miu um, store because it's more like loud and it's more, um, I guess, um, more more young and things like that. And then um, St. Christopher's Place would be more of a um, Astrid store because it's more muted, understated and classic and things like that. So like everything we do in terms of brand, we think about these two characters. I want to talk to you about what you were doing professionally before you started the business. But before that, can you tell me a bit more about your, I guess, perhaps even the time before you were a professional? Because you lived in multiple different places Mm -hmm. around the world and traveled and had to learn different languages and reintegrate into um, your social groups and had to kind of deal with that at quite a young age. I'd love to hear more about that part of your life sort of before you started a career? Yeah, that's a really um, good question. So, I mean, as a family unit, we used to travel around the world all the time, uh, even when I was young. And um, I was born in Seoul, Korea, but uh, we moved to the US, Seattle when I was five. And at that time I spoke, um, I didn't speak a word of English. I did have English lessons, but if you don't put language into context, you don't really understand anything. So when I walked into a classroom, I was in the first grade. I, like it just felt like I was walking into a dark, pitch dark room. But then when you're a kid, I think you don't realize that it's hardship. You just adapt to it. So within, I think, like three to six months, I did um, become quite fluent. So like, I don't know if I look back like I was fluent, but I could understand everything. I, I could converse. Um, and then I moved back to Korea. And then we kept on moving back and forth because of my dad's job, because he worked for the government. So he worked in the World Bank at one point, and then he worked for the embassy in the US at one point. So we moved back and forth. So having to kind of like adapt to different cultures and situations have become a huge part of um, 
I guess my identity because whenever I went to the US, I wasn't fully American. Um, I was that Korean girl that got planted, and like, um, uh, you know, I was that new girl. And then, like, whenever I went back to Korea, so when I was growing up, international schools wasn't a big thing. So I just went into local schools and I had to adapt to Korean language, Korean curriculum all over again when I went back. So I had to like constantly switch back and forth. So I, I think I just became comfortable. Um, not not fitting in in a way comfortable being like um that odd one out comfortable being um having to catch up on things and adapt so that's what really shaped me and i i think i I do think that's um that was a really good foundation for me and become an entrepreneur because uh, you probably know emily that uh, being an entrepreneur you need to be comfortable um uh, being the odd one out and always being different and adapting to different situations yeah, totally. Do you, I was going to say, do you think that the idea of displacement is quite integral to entrepreneurialism? Because when you lack this sort of anchor or this sense of belonging, you almost want to create something, certainly in my experience, initially for yourself, a place where you want to work that you can belong to that sort of has value that you have ownership over. And then in time, as the business grows, it becomes that vehicle for other people, which is really where the reward is, because then you've sort of created something that's beyond just benefiting you but actually becomes something for other people and I guess through the characterization of Astrid and me and and also you know your team and your business and all the people that buy the product you've almost now created this club probably having felt like you didn't have one before yeah absolutely that's so spot on yeah I mean that's a really good way to articulate that I didn't think about it that way but I think um uh, I mean that's so true yeah you've really articulated that well for me And so after, you know, having been exposed to different cultures, different languages, different social groups, the dynamics that exist globally in all different places with all different people, what did you go into when you first started your professional career? Yeah, I mean, it's not as exciting. I went into investment banking, but um, hear me out. So investment banking was just um, starting out in Korea back then. And I always knew that I wanted to be a business person. I always aspired those women who had like fitted suits, like going into the office, appearing very powerful. You're nodding with me. Like, were, were you the same? No, yeah. It's funny because when I, like when I was in my twenties, I had, um, like confidence issues, I guess, with sort of the way I looked, that was sort of my, the thing I dealt with in my twenties. And every time I went to, uh, try and explore those with you know people who who knew a lot more about it than I did. They always talked about visualizing what success looks like yeah. for you, and I spent a really long time absorbing what I thought other people wanted me to think was the idea of success. So for me, it was always sort of like a person in a bikini being confident on a beach yeah. is what I sort of thought was the well, aspiration. When I was in my late twenties. I I remember having a session that was quite profound for me where it was actually a woman in a fitted trouser suit. Mm. I don't know what, you know, the particulars of the exact um, location, but it was, you know, she was a mother, she was a businesswoman, she was wearing a suit, she looked fabulous, she looked healthy, she looked happy. And it was a big shift for me in terms of what the aspiration actually is, that it it wasn't sort of um, as binary as being about 
a physical aesthetic. It was sort of what that represents and what, uh, what that yeah. ability to dress like that and have that confidence and wear that suit represents. So it's interesting that your description of that kind of businesswoman as a, as a, uh, moment to work towards is is kind of a similar type of image yeah oh that's so interesting because even when I was a little girl I don't think I ever aspired to be a mom or a princess like that those things didn't interest me like I, every time I saw a businesswoman I thought like that's so cool she looks so cool so I always mm-hmm. wanted to like do something in business and I love the whole workings behind the business as well so I went into investment banking because I I knew that you could I, I could learn a lot and I could travel and they paid really well and all the smart kids seemed to go into that direction at that time anyway. So I joined investment banking. I did that for about four years. So I started in the Seoul office in Korea and then I moved to Hong Kong. And that's um, when I moved to Hong Kong, that's when I really started helping um, real scale-up businesses, mainly based in China, IPO. And these were unicorns. And it was so interesting to see the business models behind it and meet the CEOs and the founders. And I think that's what really um, got me excited about the startup world. We hear a lot about unicorns. The definition, um, just for anyone listening who might not know, it's the it's essentially a company that blitz scales, right? So they get a billion dollar valuation within is it twenty four months or is it is there a time period within which you have to have that status? Oh, I, to be- I, I don't know. I didn't know that there was a time period. But but anyways, yeah, the, these companies are valued at over a billion um, yeah. dollars at that time. Yeah. And so for you, did you feel capable when you took on those, or were you sort of learning and out of your depth and kind of figuring it out, or did you feel very capable of taking on those? Um, companies at the point at which they were gearing up to Taipei? Yeah, I think I felt pretty comfortable in my role when I was in banking, but I think I, uh, it was a steep learning curve. So when I first joined, you know, you're 23, 24 years speaking to the CEOs and CFOs. So you kind of have to fake it to make it initially, but the learning curve is so steep. And um, mm. I really appreciate all the learnings, but by year like two, three, I felt like it plateaued and I was um, pretty bored and also burnt out because of the long hours and just the culture didn't really gel with me. Yeah. Do you think it's important to have, a professional career, you know, like in your instance, banking behind you before you start a business? Has that been really important for you in terms of raising money and growing your own company? Mm, I mean, not necessarily. I think if someone has the confidence and the great idea, like what what you did, Emily, you started your business early on and you're successful. I think if I had the balls to do it when I was 22, 23, like I would have definitely done it. But I don't think I had that confidence at that time. And, you know, like growing up with, I, I don't know whether you have like Asian friends, but growing up um, with Asian parents, they expect you to be certain things. Like you have to be a banker or a lawyer or a doctor. So mm-hmm. I kind of did that. And also uh, I think in a way, like going out to investors, it helped because it had credibility on my CV. They knew I was a banker. They knew I could build a business case and a business model. So that definitely helped. And um, I, I could like hold off on hiring a finance function for a long time because I could do all the financial modeling myself. But like, I, I don't think you necessarily need to go through that in order to start a business. Yeah, I mean, youth is youth gives you great naivety in terms of starting a business. I think when you're sort of 21, 22 and you're, you've got sort of faux confidence that the world hasn't hardened you yet. So you think, <laughs> if I fuck it up, I'll be 24 and really employable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
you think, you know, I, I, I honestly look at people who start companies in their 30s when they've got kids and a mortgage and a salary and they, they leave that to go and start up a business. That's a, a very different type of bravery to being 21 and fresh out of university and, and having a go at something. Yeah, um, yeah. And in a way, I think if you do work for big companies for a long time, you pick up bad habits. And you kind of lose that na- naivety or like slash idealism. And I think you need to be a pretty idealistic slash like positive person to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, absolutely. What were the practical steps that you took to launch the business? You mentioned that you were beginning to feel burnt out and they, there was a cultural issue in terms of you not necessarily seeing yourself there long term. What was the moment that you realized you were going to move? And was it gradual or did you quit and start the brand what were the sort of practical steps yeah so um on during my fourth year i um was announced my bonus and i thought like i really don't deserve to be paid this much and as soon as that bonus hit my bank account i quit <laughs> and then i p- applied for business school because i didn't know what i wanted to do i i knew i was burnt out and i knew i had to find that passion something that makes me wake up in the morning with a lot of energy so I applied for, to business school and at that time, vaguely, I thought, oh, I love fashion. So I'd love to go into fashion. So I did a couple of stints at LVMH brands doing consulting work as well as um, like an internship during the MBA. And as I um, graduated, I, I, I don't know, I, I didn't get very excited about joining the corporate world anymore. So I started Astro to Mew as a project when I graduated. So the practical steps were, so it wasn't, um, I mean, it wasn't difficult because I wasn't quitting a job. I was a student still. So it was a project. So I invested 500 pounds um, on a freelance web developer, I think around a thousand pounds on a graphic designer and built a website that crashed all the time. But the biggest investment I made was um, I hired a PR agency. um, And that was the biggest investment because I had a couple of friends that were in fashion who always told me like PR is everything in fashion. So I just like went in, I knew nothing and then hired a PR agency. And it really worked out well because the first couple of weeks we were picked up by Grazia shopping list and stylish shopping list, which were the holy grails at that time. And that mm. um, brought in customers that were not my friends or family. Mm. And I used to stalk all my customers when they came in. And um, that I, I think that kind of gave me confidence to um, try this out as a real business. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you had a model that was, that was working and operating. And I guess <laughs> in terms of your uh, initial steps with budgets, you mentioned that PR was perhaps a bigger investment and that was something that you did see a return of investment mm-hmm. on how did you decide where to allocate the money how did you I mean because this was 2012 so right at the beginning of the Instagram social media boom yeah. obviously pre Snapchat TikTok and all the other ones that we've got to contest with now but it was really a kind of Twitter Instagram moment um did you, how did you pick the channels through which you deployed your capital? So initially um, I tried out Facebook, Twitter, and um, Instagram. I think Instagram kind of picked up in 2013. So a year after I launched, I started all of those. And I think there was a platform called Vine at that time that Twitter acquired. So like we were on Vine, but Twitter, I really didn't get. And and Instagram, I personally really loved because it was image based and I thought it it would resonate with our customers. So quickly, like after the initial couple of months, I decided to focus on Instagram. And back then there was no algorithm. So within the first year, I think we gained 20 to 30,000 followers just organically. And 
yeah, I, and I spent nothing on it and I didn't even spend money on like imagery or anything. I just took everything on my iPhone and just <laughs> uploaded and gained 20, 30 follow- thousand followers, which uh, I think we can't do at, at this point in time. So I think I was quite lucky and influencer marketing wasn't a thing back then. They were not called influencers. They, uh, there were bloggers that would just write about what they love. So I would contact them and, um, tell them that I'm a small brand. I'm the founder and they'd be like, Oh, just send, send over some, um, pieces and we'll feature. And I just get featured that way. And obviously press was a huge part of brand building as well. So I did a lot of things organically. I don't think I paid anything in terms of marketing. The only investment was the PR agency again. Um, and like some photo shoot imagery and that that was it. And I, I don't think it would be possible right now to do that. No, it's, it's a really interesting point because, it's very difficult to imagine a time before now Mm -hmm. when social media was perhaps less evolved because it's just so integral to the rhetoric of our day to day. Um, Actually, you're right. You know, I think with with the growth and explosion of social media, one would assume that actually we're all much more connected, but there are many more barriers because everything costs more money. There's a, you know, we had a, we had someone get in touch with us the other day who wanted, he was launching a brand. He wanted to, seed product with a thousand influencers and you know the numbers are insane mm-hmm. and obviously lots of people have representation it's a bit of a wild west in some categories it's a bit of a race to the bottom the general rule is that then if the number of something increases the value decreases so the fewer bloggers at the beginning the value of that's much more now there's you know millions of influencers that the impact really of one is probably reduced you've got to have a so a dedicated social media hire who you've got to pay. You've got to have someone who understands SEO and PPC. You've got to look at the ever-changing algorithms. You've got to manage Facebook business manager or whatever it's called. Yeah. And so suddenly actually there's all these jobs that didn't exist, yeah. which I think is fascinating. And there was a there was a very interesting study, and I'm, I don't have all the information of this, which isn't very helpful, but there was a study that Apple did about some very high percentage of school children now aren't being taught the skills that will occupy like 70% of the jobs in the next decade Mm. because all the things like coding and whatever else is on that list aren't on the curriculum but are actually integral to the workforce remaining relevant as we yeah, continue. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I, I mean like coding, they talk about coding a lot, but I feel like it's going to be like using Excel in a few years time, right? Like it, yeah. it will be a prerequisite. It won't be a special skill. That's what I think. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. You launched in 2012. How long prior to that were you running the business sort of as a project? So I was running it as a project for about... So I started working on it in September 2011 and launched it in March 2012, so six months. So I was working in the background, finding suppliers, um, doing the designs and I guess like designing the website and things like that. How did you find suppliers? So I I just um, went to Korea and just asked around and I happened to, uh, I met like loads of different suppliers, but a lot of jewelry suppliers, I think historically, like globally are run by middle-aged men, say same in Korea. But I found this supplier who um, was around my age at that time. She was in her late twenties and she happened to inherit that business because her dad um, passed away and she never wanted to be a jewelry supplier. She wanted to be a ski instructor. <laughs> but she, um, yeah, she just um, happened to inherit that business and she just was so fascinated by 
by what I was building. And I think it, it became her passion project. So she, she helped me so much. And everything I know about materials and design and production is, um, well, you know, what, what she taught me. And she's um, our, one of our suppliers um, to date at the moment. And she really believed in me, which meant that she allowed me to manufacture things at very small quantities. Normally, if you you know, were ma- to manufacture a design from a supplier, you'd have to manufacture 200, 300 pieces per design. Yeah. But with her, I could manufacture like five pieces with some of the designs, yeah. which um, allowed me to have uh, loads of um, designs on the website. So she's, um, yeah, I, like she was my hero, basically. And do you think, uh, I spoke to Pip from Pip and Nut, and she was saying that their manufacturers are very much partners. They have to believe in what you're doing. They have to see your vision because they attach to you to know that you'll scale. And it really is a kind of long-term investment. Is that yeah. the same in in your business, in your industry? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Especially when you're starting up, when you have very small quantities, you're not well known. They really need to be able to buy into that vision and kind of like be enchanted in a way and if you can Mm. have one of those like you're really lucky did you ever have any disasters with suppliers over the years did you ever get batches of product that were not what you wanted or damaged or any kind of issues that you've had to deal with in, in the supply chain. Yeah, absolutely. All the time. Now we're getting better. Like, I mean, before we had this whole product team, I used to manage everything. So we had a lot of disasters back then, but now we have a really strong team who manages that. So we have someone who um, controls the quality, who looks after regulations and um, who looks after every single stage of design and sampling. So we have less of that now. It's much more controlled, but yeah, I used to have disasters all the time. (laughs) Do you think that there's a standard when people launch businesses now that they have to be perfect on day one when actually the reality is, you know, your first website was Mm. five pounds crashed all the time. The packaging probably has evolved. You got products that you might not send out you, you might not have sent out now, but you might have sent out six years ago or whatever. Do you think there's a lot of pressure to kind of get it all right at the beginning when actually it is a process and it, it, yeah. you have to start and it evolves? Yeah, probably, especially because of social media, right? You have all these like glamorous founders who happen to be running the business really well, but also like they also look impeccable on social media. So I think there's definitely a lot of pressure there. But um, yeah, yeah, uh, that's a really good point. I, it would be really good for business to to show more of that unglamorous side as well. So people know what's realistic, what's not. Do you have a good relationship with social media yourself? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I mean, social media is what built Astrid and Mew. So I love social media. Like it's, it's what made the brand. Personally, um, I'd like to be more active on it, but I just can't find the time to, and I'm not very good at it personally. So, um, but yeah, I, I don't know. Like, ask my husband. He hates it when I'm scroll, scrolling through Instagram. So he might say otherwise that I have an unhealthy relationship. But I don't know. Like, I don't get um, depressed about it when I look at like glamorous people on Instagram. I get inspired. So yeah, I, yeah, I do have a healthy relationship. Do you use it as a source of inspiration with competitors um, in order to keep up with sort of what other people are doing and, and look at? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, a lot of my inspiration used to come from traveling before COVID, but now we can't travel. I do scroll through Instagram to uh, look at people um, and yeah, enjoy vicarious. Yeah. Yeah. 
how have you navigated the sustainability challenges for modern brands? I know that the sustainability conversation has become a lot louder and probably for anyone launching a brand now is a prerequisite Mm. of having to keep up with the expectations of consumers. You launched a business almost 10 years ago. Have you had to apply things retrospectively to packaging and supply chain and Mm. or or has it all been integral? What's been your... I mean, it's always always been integral. We would always... um, audit our factories and always ask them and always try to visit them. But um, with this whole sustainability initiative, I think it's such a massive topic, but it's just, um, I guess, like having to do the right things. And it's good that it's being amplified. So uh, companies are forced to do the right thing. So some of the things that we've implemented recently is like, all of our packaging is fully recyclable now because some of the like handles and things were not recyclable. So we've done that and we are launching a fully um, recycled material collection in September. And we have goals to um, have 50% of our um, inventory uh, made from recycled materials by end of next year. And it's um, we're really fortunate because if we asked us last year, we wouldn't have been able to do this in a cost-effective way. But a lot of um, manufacturers have caught on to this as well because they know it's really important and a lot of brands are asking for it. So um, we're able to turn that around and we're also launching a collaboration with um, a, a really famous vintage store. So watch this space. So we're launching something in September, um, which has a huge sustainability story but we're looking at every single stage of our um, supply chain as well just to make practice those practical steps and for for instance our shop fit we um, are working with local manufacturers for joinery that use recycled materials so like using recycled plastics and things like that but but I mean this is endless there's so many things we can do and I can't say that we're sustainable yet but we are trying to do the right things. In terms of advice for anyone listening who is starting a brand or is in the early stages, do you think the right thing to do is do what you can rather than look at brands like Patagonia who have huge profit margins to reinvest and you know huge global teams and sustainability experts and advisors? Is your advice to, to pick the bit that you can have an impact on and not worry about being uh, fully recycle uh, fully sustainable across the board because you do have to be in a strong position as a business to be able to do that yeah yeah absolutely it's just being practical about things and weighing the pros and cons um and if you have aspirations to launch the brand that shouldn't really hold you back just putting a lot of those processes but i think now with um if you were to launch a brand there are so many manufacturers that are onboarded with the sustainability concept so you'll be able to find a lot of suppliers and manufacturers that can mm. um, do things sustainably. So just picking those right partners um, instead yeah. of like trying to reinvent the wheel from scratch. As far as I'm aware, you don't have a co-founder. Is that correct? No, I don't. Tell me a little bit about what it's like to run a business as a woman and without a business partner? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think um, there, there are pros and cons. So I think at initial stage, um, I did enjoy being a sole founder because when I look at friends or other founders that are co-founders, I think they spend a lot of time like discussing and debating and agreeing on, on things. 
And I think I had that luxury of just like, think if I think about something, I can just action because there's only one single vision. And I think that's really important in kicking things off. However, like at later stage, I think it would be um, quite helpful to have a co-founder just to bounce ideas and to have people that have different skill sets. So if I were to maybe like found like another business in the future, maybe I'll have a co-founder. I don't know, because it is a very lonely journey. And I think that's, um, I think that's what it is. I do have a really great team and I do share, tend to share most things with the team, but there are certain things that I need to keep to myself, right? If I'm really exhausted and I'm really scared or like anxious, I can't tell my friends about, I can't tell my team about it. But if I had a co-founder, I feel like I'd have that support network. Yeah. And I guess also there's a practical element, which is, if you are, you know, have more of a finance background and product development and business mentality, having a business partner who's sales, PR, marketing, influencer, SEO, whatever that side is, mm. it's a hire that you don't have to make. Yeah. So you're covering more bases. Whereas as a solo founder, you really have to be able to turn your hand to everything. And even if you don't, even if you're not a complete expert in it, certainly in my experience, you have to be adept enough to be able to hire someone and then decide whether they're doing a good job, mm-hmm. which does mean you need an understanding of that yeah. um, area. So it can be quite challenging. I agree with you. I, if I started another business, I would definitely want to do it with someone. I just think that you want to share both the good and the bad. It can be quite isolating and as you say it's not appropriate to to show up and be upset or exhausted or yeah. you know sort of you're supposed to be more tired and more stressed than everyone else because <laughs> you chose this ridiculous yeah, yeah. but you have to be this a ball of energy and positivity don't you you have to like bring that energy to the team yeah and I think that's what's important about honest conversations about running a business is that it can be of course it's rewarding and of course there's a financial benefit to owning the entirety of your business and you have complete autonomy and you have hopefully a lifestyle that you've created and you know all the wonderful things that go along with that but it can also be heartbreaking and thankless and challenging and you can invest in people who leave and you can you know experience all sorts of ups and downs with individuals in your team as well as crushing disappointment and your own personal goals your own professional goals set alongside the realities of running a business and it's not to put people off but I think there's a standard now of aspirations to become an entrepreneur in order to tell people that you're an entrepreneur Mm -hmm. and the reality is there's many many people for whom this isn't the right job they might there are lots of jobs where you're a number two or an MD or a head of something that are incredibly rewarding and high powered, interesting jobs. But, but it does take a special source to be an entrepreneur because it's, it really is quite challenging. And I would say for me personally, probably in the last 18 months, I've spent 85% of my time doing jobs. I don't like doing. Yeah. And you have to, you have to take on the jobs that other people can't do or like, you know, don't, don't like to do because it's your business. Yeah, exactly. With that in mind, we can't really talk about running a business now without talking about COVID. (laughs) Most people were flat out trying to keep their own businesses afloat. You still found the time in addition to 
uh, mothering two children and maintaining a relationship and running your own business, you still found time to help other people. Can you tell me a bit more about the Business Accelerator program? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, like, don't get me wrong. I did have to scramble through um, scenario analysis and cut all costs, all variable costs, especially marketing costs during COVID just to stay to stay afloat. I think the first four weeks was... Um, I don't know what it was. It was hell and blur. <laughs> but when we came out of this, yeah. um, I saw so much kindness in this world as well. So it wasn't just me. It was a lot of business owners giving back. And I just felt that sense of community. And I really wanted to contribute and give back. And I thought the best way for me to do it is to give back to um, budding entrepreneurs. So I started mentoring three business owners at that time unofficially. And then I thought like, oh, it would be really good to scale this because like some of them were um, wanting expertise in operations and we had a great head of operations in the business and some of them were wanting expertise in marketing and we had a great head of marketing in the business. Um, And then it was timed with um, the Black Lives Matter movement when when I tried to initiate this. So we decided to mentor six um, Black business owners at that time. And I had all my senior leadership team pitch in and um, become mentor of each of this bus- these business owners. And we hosted events and we, we had um, one of our angel investors come in and talk about funding. We had a PR agency come in and talk about like PR. Um, and yeah, so, so that's how it all started. And it was really rewarding. Um, we were giving back, but also internally we were growing a lot. And my senior leadership team thought that was the most rewarding experience they had. So we're continuing on with this journey and we're currently screening for next um, um, mentees at the moment. Yeah. So Brat businesses get in touch with you to essentially request your mentorship and then you have a process whereby you decide based on your team skill set and I guess your interest in the business and what they're doing but also your ability to advise them I assume to find the right fit Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely you mentioned a moment ago that particularly the first month was no one knew what was going on how tough was COVID for you were there were there tears were there very scary conversations or did you go into survival mode and remodel the business and just you know need a plan and then follow that yeah I think it was the later I didn't know what I was going doing but I it just like made me really sharp and uh, I think I had COVID during that time when things were um, going down I was so sick but then I was getting complaints from stores that um, someone from another concession in Selfridges had COVID so the store managers are panicking so even before the national lockdown we put together a plan like I was in bed like I couldn't speak um put together a plan to close down our stores and uh, you know no one was going into shutdown at that time so we had to build in a quick scenario analysis and we had to build in a furlough scheme which didn't kick in until later after the um so we had to just build in worst case scenario how long can we survive with the cash that we have now if we assume zero sales for the next like three months six months 12 months so we built all of that in. And in the worst case, I think the worst case scenario was um, we lose all our online sales because um, warehouse closes as well and stores close for six months. So we have no revenue for six months. And I think we could survive um, for about eight months with zero revenue. So that made me pretty comfortable because I thought that was the worst worst case scenario. Um, Yeah. Yeah. We we actually had a similar runway here and it's interesting because a lot of businesses 
only a lot of businesses operate with three months running costs. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's pretty standard, obviously, yeah. depending where you are in your funding cycle or, or whatever yeah. else. But it was a really interesting time because very quickly, it, it all happened very quickly in March. And obviously, we were given our marching orders, so to speak, excuse the pun. And then you had this three, you had this period of time where, oh, by May, it'll be over. You know, we'll all be fine. Mm. We've been given instructions. And then you get to May and you're like, oh, this isn't over. And then, oh, it's the summer. It'll be fine. And then for us, <laughs> September was the next milestone. Yeah. You get to September and it's like, well, you know, this is still a complete shit show. And obviously the globally it had exploded. And mm. um, I think at that time, California was completely shut down yeah. in America leading into the election. And that was all, America was basically completely fucked anyway. Um, and then you edge towards Christmas and it's just devastating all these businesses that are already on their knees where you've got Black Friday, you've got Christmas, you've got this incredible retail boom opportunity every year, which a lot of businesses make all their mm. money in yeah. before and after that. Then you have a lockdown and everyone emerges in January having been battered and bruised from a very, very difficult year where imagining zero revenue is a scenario you would never really plan in your business. And also I think the other thing is that what is important to understand is that you saying we could, we could, the business could survive for eight months without revenue, without generating any revenue. At the end of that eight months, there is no money. Every month that you are feeding into your cash flow, you are then eating that without making any profit back. So it's not really about just surviving. It's about, you know, if the survival is showing up to the start line, you've got to be match fit. You can't show up with like a broken leg and smoking a cigarette. You've really got to be match fit. So that's a really difficult balance to strike. And then you get into this year. And I think, I think the first quarter of this year was really challenging for lots of people. January was five weeks. Payday was the end of the month. Lots of people still on furlough. The cogs hadn't really started turning and the refresh of the new year didn't really happen. And it has been really slow and really difficult. And then if you're running a business, the moment things move again, you've got to sprint because you've lost the year. You know, it's really strange. I mean, I think, you know, everything in hindsight is very different, but it has been a really fascinating time to run a business, but but definitely not without not without challenges. Do you foresee a positive next six months? You've obviously got lots of exciting stuff going on, but are you do you remain positive in spite of? Yeah, yeah, I definitely remain. I, I I'm definitely positive. When we open reopen stores in April, our store um, sales were at peak levels, like Christmas levels, and we thought that's pent up demand because people were locked in at home. But we are still yeah. trading at that level, and we're seeing so much engagement, especially in physical retail. People want to get out. People want to have that physical um, human interaction. So I'm pretty hopeful we um you know we're gearing up to open a couple more sources here um Mm -hmm. so i'm positive um but i think one thing i'm struggling with is um just managing motivation within the team because a lot of people have been locked down without a lot without proper holidays so just managing those and um yeah and i guess like managing my motivation as well is um, a challenge 
Did you have any flexible working policies before COVID happened or did you have to engineer them and deploy them as it was all happening? Yeah, we always had flexible working. So we had once a month work from home before COVID, but people, if, um, you know, people had problems or if they were traveling or if they were seeing family outside of London, we always had that flexibility. Um, So we didn't have to like adjust so much in terms of technology. I guess like meetings became more of a challenge because if we were to meet and discuss, everything had to be much more formalized. So we started having a lot of formal meetings, which now we're trying to reduce a bit because people are having so many meetings. And I think that this seems to be a problem after the pandemic across all businesses. But um, Yeah. yeah, it's like Zoom fatigue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're trying to reduce meetings now. Yeah, exactly. You just touched on it briefly, but you announced in April this year um, revenues hitting over 10 million pounds and that you were opening additional stores across London, one being in Notting Hill, which I know is where the business began. So sort of an important site for you. I'm interested in your advice and your decision to invest in retail or, yeah. or brick yeah. when many new businesses are being told D to C online, own your data. It's, you know, it's got to be an online proposition. Mm. Can you tell me a bit more about the decision to have the stores yeah. and why you're continuing to invest in physical retail? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, for me, um, direct-to-consumer direct is not just about digital. If we have our own stores and can operate and fully own that experience, that's direct-to-consumer. And all of our data is linked there as well. And actually, um, contrary to what people think or what people experience, our store economics are... Um, better um if not much better than our online store uh, online store economics so we're more profitable on on the retail side it might be category specific because we need very small stores and we can stock everything under all our cupboards Um, so that's one thing and i think just providing that 360 experience for our customers build loyalty so our lifetime value of our customers go up and we find that customers that shop in our stores um their you know their value per purchase is much higher as well because they can interact with the products and they also experience our um ser- services which are piercing tattoo welding so they get the 360 experience that they can't get online so i think i guess my advice to um other brands would be like when you um enter into owning that direct-to-consumer space, don't neglect physical retail, but when you go into physical retail, really think about what you're providing that's very different from the experience you provide online. Yeah, good advice for sure. I want to talk to you um, about money. Mm -hmm. You raised £4 million in 2019. You mentioned your background, so uh, I'm assuming that had quite a big impact, but how did you know when to raise the money and how did you know where to get it from? Yeah, that's a really good question. So before 2019, I had a small group of angel investors that invested. So it was a really small, it was like half a million pounds in 2015. And before then I was completely bootstrapping. So I was using my savings to reinvest in the business and the revenues that came in uh, got reinvested. But at that point, I really wanted to open a physical store and really spend more on marketing. Because until then, like I didn't spend anything on marketing, as I told you, like, 
like didn't invest anything, like did everything organically, but we did hit that wall um, at some point. And also like physical retail was a huge part of my entire vision because I wanted that experience component um, to be part of the brand. So to open a store and to invest in marketing. So um, that, that process, I did kiss a lot of frogs. I had to meet so many people because you, had, um, you know, to get to a half a million, it doesn't sound like a big amount, but you have to tap into different people. And um, if you're tapping into angel investors, I think momentum is really important because when you meet one person, they're probably able to invest, I don't know, like 50 grand. And then you have to gather 10, 10 of them, but they normally want to commit only after other people commit. So just creating that um, social proof and buzz leading up to it is really important. So I, where I got um, eventually my all most of my investment was through a presentation I did in front of a group of angels, and my pitch was um, at that time the most popular pitch out of like all all the other businesses. So they were lining up, and I think they saw that it was popular, so everyone wanted to invest, and that's how I got my first investment. And then the four million pounds. Um, so out out of that, um, only a very small portion went into the company, and majority, like more than three million, went into buying out the angel investors um, share. So the, those initial angel investors made a 10 times return on their investment. So that, that's the background. And um, I, I guess at that time, I just wanted to um, consolidate ownership. So we have one institutional investors that the investor that I report to, um, and um, they, they did inject some capital into the business, but we didn't need that much money into the business. And um, I, I just happened to come across um, this investor. He's called Marcus and he runs this fund called Aternum and they primarily invest in jewelry brands. And um, he used to run Swarovski America. He used to run Baccarat in Paris. So he he's an operator and a CEO. So he understands um, the operations and the people aspect of the business, which is very unusual for an investor. And, you know, we shared a very similar vision and um, I knew that, you know, he would allow me to run the way, run the business as I would want um, to run the business. We were very aligned in the vision and I just respected him so much. So um, I guess like I wasn't necessarily looking for investment, but I just found that right fit. Therefore decided to accept the investment. When you originally connected with the angels, did you think that later down the line you would want to fund a buyout or was that just the scenario that presented itself? And when you found this new investor, you thought this is actually a lot cleaner for this next phase? Mm. Yeah, when I when I got angel investment, I knew that I had duty to um, buy them out at some point because they are at the end of investing to make a return. But I didn't think that it would happen this soon. It, the opportunity just came, came along. And sometimes like at this stage, if you go to a VC or a private equity, they don't tend to want to buy existing shareholders out. They would probably want to inject growth capital. Therefore, like primary um, investment only into the business, but they were happy to be pretty flexible to buy the existing shareholders out as well. And I think it everything just aligned and it just felt like it was meant to be for me. You might have already answered this when we spoke about the physical stores, but what is the most valuable investment that you've made into the business to help it grow? Yeah, I, I guess physical retail, but I, I'm thinking um, probably people. Investing in people was probably the best decision. 
I'm just hiring because every time I hire initially, when I first started the business, I was so scared to hire people because that's like a huge commitment and a lot of responsibility. But every time I hire good people, um, you know, the business can just, that unit can just run itself and I don't need to worry about it. And they're generally so much better than I am. So just investing in people has been the best investment. Hmm. What's the best piece of advice? I'm going to ask you that again. What's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given about building a business? Yeah. So um, one of um, our angel investors who actually didn't sell out in the last round, who's um, still sits on the board, he's called Gary. And when I first met him, he told me, you need to, um, you know, keep control of your business as long as you can. And that's typically not the advice that investors normally give you. And I thought that was really empowering, but it's so true because when you're starting out, you need to be really flexible. And I think like, you know, the founder is the only person that has the clear vision. So just being able to have that control over vision um, as well as the company, I think that was um, a really good advice from him. And I guess like I kind of took that on board when I um, accepted investment from the new fund acronym because the investors were so aligned with my vision. So I could still have full freedom to run the business. Yeah. You do hear horror stories about people who take investment and then they've basically just got five horrible bosses. And obviously the transaction with an investment is that people are giving money on the proviso that you're giving them a return. And in some businesses, particularly tech, it might be 10 X times 10 X, but in other businesses, you know, for you to give that return to investors, presumably was a lot more than they were expecting. Um, I think it's interesting the the best partnerships, whether it's with factories or retailers or investors, to your point, are really truly about people who believe in the business and understand what you're trying to do and mm-hmm. how you want to work and where and when you need advice and where you need course correcting, but actually sort of letting you get on with it yeah. and trusting you and trusting you with your vision and, and what they've given you the money to do is integral to that relationship working in a way that's productive yeah absolutely absolutely do you ever take time to enjoy successes and wins in the business or are you committed to a relentless pursuit and always on to the next thing oh geez that's a um that's a really good question i I feel like I should do a better job in celebrating, actually. Yeah, I'm, I'm like... You'd be surprised how many people say, say they never really yeah, stop. Yeah, themselves. yeah. I, I think I can be kinder to myself probably and celebrate um, a bit more because I'm constantly like whipping myself and constantly thinking of better ways to do things, um, mm-hmm. which I guess is uh, one of the reasons why like we keep on evolving. But um, yeah, I would like to do that more. So thanks for reminding me. <laughs> well it's a hard balance isn't it? because yeah. you have to have a relentless appetite mm. because that keeps you getting up and running the business and you do need to have a very high threshold to being knocked down yeah there is a delicate balance where I think it can be really relentless and and you don't want you know the end goal if you never stop on the way then you just end up somewhere and probably look back and regret not not enjoying. I mean, my, my personal feeling is that particularly in the last year, the wins have been fewer and far between. So you you want to capture those and hold yeah. on to them so there's at least some positivity coming out. Yeah, of, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What have you found to be the biggest myth or assumption about 
starting and running a business and and has it stacked up to be true? Oh, biggest oh, that's a that's a hard question. What what are some of the myths? Like some of the myths are that you immediately become rich. That's mm. a good one. Yeah, you run yeah. a business millionaire. Others have been that you have a lot of control over your time. Uh, others have been that you go to lunches with other women all the time mm-hmm. and have a sort of fabulous yeah, boss yeah, life. Yeah. Those are all like myths. The biggest misconception I had was um, when I started the business, like I wanted to start it because I wanted full control. Like obviously I do have full control over business strategy or um, where my destiny is, which is all great. But on a day-to-day basis, I have no control. I need to let my team do what they want. Right. Otherwise, like um, I wouldn't be empowering or motivating them. So I think that was um, probably the biggest struggle for me over like the last years. Now I'm at peace with it and I know where my place is in the business, but not having full control over like the details, I think. um, Yeah. That's probably a myth. Like people think like if you're running the business, you have like control over every single thing. And I think some founders still do, but um, uh, I'm not sure. Like I personally think that's probably not the best way to run a business. You probably have to give freedom to your team. And let go. Yeah, to do their jobs. How do you ensure that you keep learning? Do you listen to podcasts? Do you travel? Do you read? Do you talk Mm. to other entrepreneurs? How do you keep learning? Yeah, all all of those. I love traveling and learning and being inspired before COVID, but now I can't. Um, I love reading. I love listening to podcasts. I love your podcast, Emily. And um, I yeah and. I mean, like I learn from my team every day. So just um, if you know what questions to ask, I do believe that you can learn something from anyone. Yeah, that's good advice. What is your definition of success? My definition of success, that's a, yeah, that's a really interesting one. My definition of success is um, having the perfect equilibrium of um, relationships, so family and friends, money, obviously, and work. Um, enjoying my work and also having um, time for self-care and also having a purpose in what I do. So achieving all of those would be the definition of success. I haven't achieved it yet. I'm working towards it. Um, So yeah, I need to remind myself of that. Do you think that we're shy as women or generally as a society in talking about money and the impact of making money on our on our lifestyle and on our ability to achieve equilibrium? Yeah, probably. I think society, especially like in developed societies, people are generally more shy about money and making money. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I don't, I don't think you need to be because at the end of the day, like you are, I mean, money is not the only purpose, but it, it does um, motivate me anyways. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's a really important thing to say because there is, an obvious benefit to running and owning your own company, which whether that's being profitable or whether that's selling out or whatever the business vision and structure is, making money is a part of that. And I think there is a shyness or a reluctance to talk about it, particularly in the UK. It seems quite great to talk about money, but um, it is, it does enable you to have choice and it does enable you to make decisions and make things that are, that make things easier and it doesn't necessarily mean happiness and it doesn't necessarily give you that but it might give you childcare, or it might give yeah, you absolutely not on your holiday yeah. or it might give you 
a better therapist or no. you know it's, it is an enabler yeah, yeah. I, was actually, I was actually talking about this with my husband because um I, I mean I tend to talk about money a lot when I'm with my husband and he's like oh, like you know money doesn't matter and he's like money doesn't bring happiness but I think um money alone doesn't bring happiness I I agree but a combination of all of these things um probably bring happiness and success and if you don't have money like you I, I don't think I'd be happy Mm. Yeah, I mean, I would say in the last almost 10 years of running a business, aside, you know, the, the most stressful thing probably for me is probably the same for you is when your team's suffering, if they've got things in their personal lives or if they're unhappy or unhappy with their job or whatever else, that's really tough. But the the financial pressure is mm. scary. And certainly in the early days, I spent time refreshing my bank account knowing if someone didn't pay me, mm. I was going to be in a world of pain tomorrow. And that yeah. pressure early on, particularly when you're young, it makes you want to strive to not have to have that worry. Mm. And it doesn't mean being a billionaire and it doesn't mean buying a yacht. It means being able to pick up a check and not worry about it or yeah. being able to buy something new for a party or being able to buy a gift for someone you care about yeah. and not having to worry about it and yeah. for me that was the alleviation of that um yeah. I mean I've just moved office bought a house and run an agency in COVID so my position on finance at the moment is <laughs> it's more stressful perhaps than it was two years ago <laughs> but you know it makes you realize what your own limits are and how much stress you want to take on how much pressure you want to put yourself under and what type of reward you want mm-hmm. to be market to receive and yeah. I think all of that is quite important if you're running a company you've got to be able to uh, take on finance meetings and talk about money and I think when you run a business you do become better at that because you have to talk you know the cash is the lifeblood of the business yeah. so you've got to be able to talk about it in a way that's grown up and professional without being being nervous about it yeah, yeah, so I do absolutely. think it's an important conversation to encourage people to have yeah 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 definitely the podcast is called the busyness podcast there's a standard now of being busy running a company having kids being a triathlete going on holiday having good content having a lovely breakfast whatever the things are that people see as as punctuating their day it can be very difficult to be productive in an environment where busyness is a standard of success if you had one extra hour in the day what would you use it for? I would definitely dedicate it to myself alone time, whether it be working out or reading a book or just um, doing nothing because I don't have any spare moment to do nothing. That's such a luxury with two kids and a business. So yeah, definitely dedicate that one hour to just me, purely me. What is next for the business? What's next for Astrid and me? Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. Um, I feel like we've built a really good cult status in in the UK, at at least in London anyways. And the next step is to go globally. So we just launched our German website in May. We're relaunching US in August. We have plans to open stores out in Germany and US next year. And we're also going to look into France next year. So um, building a global cult brand is what's next um, at Astro to Me. That's awesome. And you have a new store in London. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's recent. Yeah, in Nottingham. So we we actually did all the fit out in November last year, and then we went into another lockdown. So yeah, so we launched it in April, but the store was ready to launch. Um, Yeah. Okay. 
So a bit bittersweet, a bit delayed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Connie, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I know you're busy. I really, really appreciate it. I've no doubt that people at all different stages of their business journey will be able to take lots of different practical pieces of, pieces of advice from what you've shared with me in the last hour. So thank you very much. And I wish you all the best of luck with the, the growth and Christmas and the new stores and the new product lines. I've no doubt that we'll be seeing you in magazines, on billboards, in shops and, and all over the world. Oh, thank you so much. It was so lovely being here. Mm-hmm.